thank you for listening to Arcana Imperii. I am Gabrielle Roberts, and I'm joined by my co-host Ariana Roberts. Today, we will be interviewing Adam Frank. Adam Frank is a physics professor at the prestigious University of Rochester. His scientific research has focused on computational astrophysics with an emphasis on star formation and late stages of stellar evolution. Currently, his work includes studies of exoplanet atmospheres in astrobiology and exocivilizations. He is the co-founder of National Public Radio's Cosmic and Culture blog, as well as a regular on-air commentator uh, for All Things Considered. He has written a number of books, including The Constant Fire, Beyond the Religion and Science Debate, About Time, Cosmology and Culture at the Twilight of the Big Bang, and both explore the links between changing conceptions of cosmology and the human experience of time. He also wrote Astronomy, At Play in the Cosmos. His latest book is Light of the Stars, Alien Worlds and the Fate of the Earth, which explores both climate change and the search for alien life in the universe. I'm Hi, this is Adam Frank. Ah, oh, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Sure. Uh, I'm joined by my co-host, Gabrielle Roberts, here Hi, also. Gabrielle. Hi. Thank you for, like, spending time to answer our questions. Sure, sure. It's my pleasure. All right, um, so uh, let's go on with the first question. Um, okay. You tell the story of physicist... Enrico Fermi and several of his colleagues walking to lunch across the campus of the Los Alamos National Laboratory um, in 1950. In the middle of lunch, Fermi asked the question, but where are they, they being the extraterrestrials? If there are so many other life forms out there in the cosmos, why haven't we seen them? Could it be that such civilizations destroy themselves after only a few thousand years? Yes. So that question you're asking is what is called the Fermi paradox. Um, and the paradox can be stated, look, if, you know, if civilizations are common, if, if planets all over the universe are giving birth to civilizations or evolving civilizations, then why don't we see any? And there's really two ways to, to frame the Fermi paradox. And in only one of them is it actually a paradox. So the first thing you can ask is why aren't they here now? Right? If there have been lots of civilizations and they've spread all through the universe, why aren't they on Earth now? Why haven't they landed on the, um, you know, the White House lawn? Um, so that one actually turns out to be a little bit harder to answer or to come up with an answer to. But there's, lo- there's lots of ways around that one, too. But the one that where people think that sometimes people say, well, look, we've looked for extraterrestrial intelligence like signals from the stars and we haven't found any. So therefore, they don't exist. And that part is totally wrong because we really people think that astronomers are constantly looking for signals of alien uh, uh, civilizations. And actually, astronomers hardly ever do that. There's barely been any true search for extraterrestrial intelligence, uh, you know, uh, true scientific search is done at all. So we really have barely looked. It's a big, you know, it's a big universe and we barely have looked. So on one level, uh, we just don't know whether or not there's any out there. But one can ask the question, and this is a question I asked in the book, is that in general, how long does any civilization get, right? Are civilizations long-lived or are they short-lived? And that's a question that's very important for us because we face climate change and we want to know whether or not we'll make it through climate change. 
So do you think, um, you're talking about it's like hard to find aliens. So could we like automate this search with maybe AIs? Yeah, people are trying to do that now. So again, remember that there's never been any money <laughs> to do this search. You know, astronomers have to do research that they can pay students for. And, and there's never, you know, NASA never has given or not really has any given any money to do this. So, you know, if you want to do it with AI, you still have to have somebody pay for the computer programmers and the computers and the telescopes. So um, in principle, yes, you could do that. And now at least uh, there is a Russian billionaire named Yuri Milner who's funded something called Breakthrough Listen, where now finally he's committed $100 million for the next for the next 10 years to do exactly what you're saying, which is to actually get telescope time, search you know the skies for signals, and then try and use very sophisticated artificial intelligence and big data and machine learning methods to try and sort through the signals and see if there's anything there that looks interesting. So when talking about like the probability of alien life, I'd like bring up the Drake equation. So there's a lot of controversy that surrounds the the Drake equation by Frank Drake. And I attended this lecture at Sanders Hall in Harvard, uh, and he had a bunch of famous scientists examine each coefficient of the equation. And so the end result was either zero, depending on what assumptions you believe, or billions of civilizations. And you state that the number is one in 10 billion chance that we are alone in the universe. Yes. So why do you state this number? Well, because, um, so the, if you look at the Drake equation, it's seven terms. So let's just run through them. The, and well, what is the Drake equation? The Drake equation is an equation which gives you the number of civilizations in the galaxy that we could communicate with now, right? Um, and it's not an equation like E equals MC squared. It's not a law of nature. It's just what Drake was doing was he was trying to figure out all the things you had to figure out or answer, all the little sub-problems you had to answer so that you could answer that big question of how many civilizations are there in the galaxy. So there's seven terms. The first is the number of stars in the galaxy. The second is the fraction of those stars that actually have planets on them, uh, planets circling them because we believe that planets are necessary as the starting point for life. And then the next term is the number of, for those stars that have planets, the number of planets that are in orbits where you could get life to form, meaning that the, we think water is important, so these are orbits that are not too hot or not too cold, and if you poured water on the surface of the, one of these planets, it would pool up, it wouldn't freeze or uh, uh, boil away. Okay, so those three terms are all about astronomy. Now comes the next, or the another three terms. There's the fraction of, of planets in the right place for life to form, where life actually does form. There is the fraction of that life that goes on to become intelligent. There's the fraction of that intelligence that goes on to build civilizations. And then finally, the last term, the, what I call the final factor, bum, 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 is the average lifetime of a civilization. So in a paper uh, a few years ago, my colleague Woody Sullivan and I took Drake's equation and we realized that, you know, those first three terms, we know the answer to that now. Like when Drake wrote down the Drake equation, when he came up with it, the only term that was known was the first one was the number of stars in the galaxy. Nobody knew whether or not there were any planets orbiting other stars. And nobody knew whether any of those planets would be in the right place to form life. But we've undergone this amazing revolution in astronomy where we now have nailed those two terms. And what Woody Sullivan and I did said, look, that ought to be worth something, right? We ought to be able to do something with that. So what we did is, in science, 
What's important is asking the right question, right? You've got some data. What question can I use that data to answer? So we couldn't use it to answer how many civilizations there were in the galaxy, but we could use it to ask a different question, which is what is the problem? Well, how bad would the, uh, all the other probabilities have to be, the ones associated with life and intelligence and civilizations? How unlikely would it have to be uh, for us to be the only time in the entire history of the universe that there's ever been a civilization. Uh, and it turns out that number is one in 10 to the minus 22, or one in 10 billion trillion. So how do you think about that? So what this is telling you is that unless the odds, you know, if I give you a random planet, and you know, what are the odds that there's a civilization on it? Unless the odds are less than one in 10 billion trillion, then we're not the only time it's ever happened. So one in 10 billion trillion is so small. What it tells you is that unless nature is perversely biased against forming civilizations, then it's happened before. We're not the only time over the course of cosmic history that a civilization has evolved. Doesn't say there's anybody around now, doesn't say there's anybody around close to us, but it tells you that unless the universe is really biased against it, there have been other civilizations that have been born, lived, and possibly died over the course of cosmic history. So which coefficients do we have the least confidence in knowing for the Frank Drake equation? Well, I think, you know, pretty much uh, all of the ones, uh, the other four, all the ones we have, we don't have anything that we know about for. Uh, you know, because we just don't know, right? I mean, probably, I guess we might say like the, the fraction of, of, uh, planets that form life. Maybe that one is the one that we can use some chemistry and, you know, get a handle on. You know, and the further you go down the line, the more you're just completely guessing. So the first, the, you know, so all the astronomy ones are nailed, so those are answered now. But the ones, say, the fraction of planets that have life on them, you know, we can do some biochemistry to imagine, to try and work out, you know, maybe what the probability of getting life is. But, but intelligence, you know, civilizations, how long they last... Who knows? You know, so that one, those, those, those other ones become. You start really talking about just guesswork. You know. Um. So tell me your thoughts on alien civilizations that self-destructed and used up their resources. How can we ourselves avoid this fate? Yeah, that's a good question. Isn't it? Well, the first thing is, you know, one of the things I'm saying is that uh, there, you know, there. So, so. People talk about existential threats to civilizations, right? By existential threat, we mean something that could really wipe the civilization out, either make all of its members extinct or just, you know, you know, make the civilization collapse so you go back to Stone Age kind of things. And so um, climate change, my, what I'm saying in the book was that climate change is something that can happen, should, and probably will happen to any technological species. Any, So I'm arguing that, A, there have been other civilizations before in the history of the universe and b pretty much all of them trigger climate change because by its very nature a civilization is you know a civilization is just a way of using of, of harvesting energy and then doing it using it to do work like of building a civilization and you know physics tells you that you can't do that without creating waste without creating pollution in some form so everybody you're always going to trigger climate change and the question is does anybody make it through climate change 
And that is a really interesting question. You know, the answer could be possibly no, but in the book I described some research where we, that we did where we tried to model. We used what we understood about planets and we used what we understood about populations in general, you know, like without even having to know the details of the biology. We just used the basic idea that, you know, uh, 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 life multiplies if it's got food. Um, and we modeled the interaction between a planet and a civilization. Uh, in particular, we wanted to know as the planet harvests uh, energy from, uh, sorry, as the civilization harvests energy from the planet and then feeds back on the planet, you know, will it push the planet into places that are hard for the civilization? So we looked at this and we found there were basically three kinds of civilization histories. The good news is one of them was um, sustainability, that you could reach a nice steady state where, you know, your population and your planet were living together harmoniously. But the other two we found were kind of collapsed. So that was bad. <laughs> you know, the civilization just kind of plummeted and everybody died. So, um, I, so the good news is it should be possible to have sustainable long-term versions of a civilization like ours. The difficult part is to know how to get there. And for that, I think you have to either, either you're lucky and uh, evolution gave you the right kinds of behaviors, like you know how to work together on, you know, over on planetary scales, or you got to evolve new behaviors. So human beings are are okay at working together on, you know, on, on like the on the scale of a town or a family. We know how to work together. It's harder to get us to work together across like the entire global civilization. So it probably means that we're going to have to evolve new behaviors in order to make it. Yeah. So, so like, if we extrapolate like the fact that like. 100 years ago, we probably couldn't have imagined the things we invented it today. If we, like, give that to this circumstance, couldn't, like, to now, like, couldn't the inventions 100 years into the future fix all the problems we face now, like with climate change? Well, I think, you know, with climate change, what you're talking about is, is I mean, the answer is yes and no, is that definitely technological innovation is going to be a big part of solving this problem. But the thing about the about climate change is that it's also you got to deal with the biosphere, like the biosphere, which is the sum total of life and the planet and the climate. And, the, you know, they got their own things that are going on. And so whatever inventions you invent, they have to take into account how the biosphere works on its own. Right. And that that was the big mistake. We just kind of thought we could invent whatever we want and do whatever we want. And we didn't need to, to think about how the planet would respond. So, yes, we're going to have to invent new things. But, you know, there's, there's going to be no miracle cure, you know, that, that lets us continue to ignore the, uh, the, the planet and how it functions. So there is some controversy on SETI type operations where instead of just listening, we broadcast. So the late... <sighs> Yeah, the late Stephen Hawking predicted dire consequences of alien contact. So, should we lay low to avoid this? Or could contact result in us receiving some kind of Encyclopedia Galactica with more sustainability <laughs> energy technologies like fusion power? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, you've done your homework. That's great. So, uh, what you're talking about is METI, messaging to extraterrestrial intelligence. And I'm definitely, I, I've read enough science fiction that I'm like, you know, we should probably lay low. I, I'm, I'm more of the, I mean, on the one hand, we have been sending signals out for a while, right? I mean, but, but those are pretty low power signals. And so unless somebody was really looking for us, it's not clear they would 
you know, find us. Um, so, yeah, in general, I think this is just my opinion, and it's a very heated argument, but I mean, who knows? I mean, you know, people often think, like, oh, if they, you know, evolve for a long time, they're peaceful, and they wear togas, and, you know. Um, I just don't, you know, I think, like, that's, that's nice. I hope that's true, but I have no, that's possibly not true. So I, I'm more, I think one should be cautious. Oh, okay. So is, um, like, given the advances in AI and robotics, might a civilization make the leap to, like, a humanity 2.0 and then transcend some of the barriers on sustainability? Yeah, like, that's, this is an interesting question that people talk about, the idea that, you know, that the, your biological phase of, 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 of a civilization is short, that basically everybody becomes silicon, you know. Um, and I'm skeptical of that. I'm skeptical of that because that has this enormous assumption that we understand what consciousness is, you know, uh, that, you know, robots that we could, that we're going to be able to download ourselves into, into, you know, computers. And, and personally, I think that has, that is rests on a very flawed, uh, description of what it means to be self-aware. Uh, so, so I mean, it's possible. I'm as a scientist, I'm completely open to the possibility, but as a scientist who's interested in philosophy, I think there's a whole lot of assumption built into that. So, do you think is one solution to reach, like, uh, to avoid sustainability is to, like, I don't know, reach, like, an exoplanet and, like, colonize it, sort of creating, like, an Earth version 2 second chance type situation? Um, you know, that's not going to happen anytime soon. First of all, because interstellar distances are so vast that we are not going to the stars anytime soon. And even Mars, you know, even, you know, we wanted to settle Mars, you know, that's moving, we just don't have, a, you know, moving a, a billion people or 20 billion people, not 20, you know, 10 billion people to Mars, that's not going to happen anytime soon. So we got to take care of this planet. You know, in the long term, thousands of years from now, we can think about maybe, you know, trying to reach for the stars, but, but in the short, you know, because climate change is something we got to deal with like now. So yeah, the, the planet B, there is no planet B. So you explain the disparity on why we haven't met alien life by sustainability issues. Could it be other causes like the physics being different further away or the cosmos is more inhospitable than we thought the earth kind of being like an oasis in a desert or have aliens found us and just don't want to make contact with us. Well, you know, the, again, now we're talking back to the Fermi paradox, and there's there's a great book called, like, sort of, I think, 75 answers to the Fermi paradox. So you can come up with lots of answers. There's the zoo hypothesis that we are basically being kept, yeah, that the aliens are like, no, don't mess with Earth, um, you know, uh, to keep us kind of as a, you know, we're a quarantine zone. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, you know, all of those solutions are possible. Uh, I think, I think... Uh, you know, my, my, okay, if you want my answer, my answer is that, uh, again, so we haven't looked enough to know whether or not there's other, you know, uh, so, so the, I, you know, it's possible that there's a lot of civilizations in the universe. I think the reason they're not here is be, uh, basically because I think it's space travel may, interstellar travel may be very, very, very difficult. So you know, we think of, uh, so, so we think of like warp drives and such, but it's not even clear that that's a coherent idea. So, you know, the distances between the stars are so vast that it just may be that, you know, having large scale transport between the stars may just be so expensive and, and so dangerous that, you know, uh, it's, it's really not done very much.
Hmm. Uh, when the Apollo astronauts went to the moon and they like took a picture of the Earth, some argue that seeing the Earth in this new perspective gave rise to the ecology movement. Do you think that this view of presence or absence of aliens is that same sort of perspective of our place in the universe? Yes, I do think. I think that that the uh, as I describe in the book, around the the first couple of years of the 1960s, three things happened that all sort of together helped shape where we're at now. One was Frank Drake's coming up with the Drake equation. Two was the beginning of the space program. So the first mission to another planet was Mariner 2 to Venus in 1962. And then the third was the recognition that climate change is happening. In, in 1965, President Johnson, you know, the president of the United States, makes a speech mentioning and mentions CO2 and climate change as a problem. Right, 1965. So those three things were, I like to call it a cultural jigsaw puzzle that was beginning to assemble itself, which we are now finally, I think, seeing the consequences of. So, you know, climate change is now really finally hitting. We've now, the space program has gotten to the point where we've visited every planet in the solar system. We know a huge amount about how planets work. And now we've also discovered planets, that there's all these planets around other stars. So I think, you know, the, our, our, our way of thinking about ourselves now in the universe is undergoing a pretty dramatic change. Um, so wrapping up with this one last question, do you have any advice for young scientists and for promoting more women in STEM? Uh, be tenacious. Don't give up. Don't let anybody tell you you can't do science, right? I mean, you know, very a, a career in science is a lot like wanting to be a you know, a dancer, like a ballet dancer or a poet, you know, imagine the most, you know, very difficult thing that most people don't get to do. Um, science is like that. You just have to be like, I'm doing this no matter what anybody says. And I am just not giving up on it. So uh, you should just, you know, don't compare yourself against other people. Just do the work you love and the work that you have passion for. And understand there's a lot of different ways to be a scientist, right? We sort of have this idea that to be a scientist, you have to be like Albert Einstein and be like a super mathematical genius. But that's only one way to be a scientist. There are some scientists who are just really good at organizing large-scale projects, you know, some large um, – uh, you know, scientific projects that involves, you know, say for climate, taking data across the, the world. You know, some scientists are just really good at seeing how to organize, you know, teams of other people. Um, so there's just, you know, some people are just really good at taking data. Some people are good at messing around with equipment. So just be absolutely tenacious. Don't let anybody ever tell you you can't do it. Yes. And recognize, one last thing, is that you guys are, you know, you, somebody has called your generation the heroic generation. And that's really true. You guys are the ones. Climate change is a totally solvable problem. And I'm sorry to tell you, but it's up to you guys to solve it. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but you can do it. Yeah. So um, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and, like, taking the time to talk with us. Uh, it's a pleasure. That sounds great. Uh, thank you.